News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we're going to check in with our Scott Johnson. Scott, I love contests like this because I love hearing people's stories. You know, it's funny to me, Simi, because I thought you were going to say, I love love. And I I sure. love love. I love love. Yeah, it's Who a wonderful thing. Who doesn't love love? Um, well, I, I'm not going to name names, but I think there oh. are some people out there. Really? Do we work with these people? Do I know these people who don't love love? I think you do. Oh, wow. I think they're, I think they're out I'm there. I'm sad. I'm sad yeah. about that because it, it's like the one great thing. Uh, you know, it really is. When you find the right person and they, they help you, you know, sort of enjoy life a little more than yes absolutely it's a wonderful yes. thing but maybe there are some people who are jaded or a little bit you know uh put off mm. by it and they they don't love love oh that's sad i feel sorry for those people same but if you're one of those people please join us in celebrating it by calling our contest line and telling us about when you met the one and when you knew it was the one and you could win a 150 dollars gift card to grouse mountain all right still to come on our show this morning as well we're going to be talking with von palmer about really more about this whole selena robinson uh, controversy. And that's something Scott and I were also going to touch on today because Scott, we had a very interesting conversation about that this morning. Yeah. You and I were sort of discussing it this morning and, and you, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Simi, you were like, oh, by the end of the day, she will either have resigned or have been told to resign. I believe so. I, I don't know how it is sustainable for her to move forward, but it prompted us to discuss the idea that she shouldn't have to, at this point, be asked to do this. What happened to the idea that you look around and you think, I have become a distraction for the good of the people that I serve, the leader that I serve, the party that I serve, the government, I should resign. Yes. And uh, like, I agree with you wholeheartedly that she should resign. Uh, I'm just questioning whether or not she actually will. The the only argument for me is that, oh, we were waiting until Monday until things sort of felt like they were back to business. Because to me, I'm like, well, if she hasn't already, is she even going to? You know, David Eby has gone on record saying, I accept her apology, but nothing about, you know, asking her to step down. She said that she's got work to do. Yeah. And so if we don't hear something today, like, I guess I just say, I want to say, like, I'm not holding my breath because too often lately we have seen that politicians and public figures do this, where they do something that we as a society deem not okay. And then they just say, well, yeah, you know what, I'm going to stay in the position, even though what I should do is step down. And I just, I, I find myself asking, what happened to dignity? Do you have no shame? Do you not understand consequences for Do we not want to teach our kids that there are consequences for actions? Like we can forgive and move on, but are you the right person to be in that job anymore? You make a good point about there are times when, yes, forgiveness is absolutely appropriate. That if somebody apologizes, you think, yes, okay, they deserve another chance. But this is kind of snowballed in this case where now you've got NDP MLAs who have are not going to be allowed to enter mosques because mm-hmm. all these different mosques are saying we don't want them here. This is an election year. So regardless of the forgiveness and, and the apology and all of that, there is a point when you realize I'm causing more trouble 
and it's not like the party yes. doesn't deserve this trouble. If I care about the party and the government, then I should step aside. That to me is the point where we are at. Yeah, like it's not about you. That's right. right. It's not about you. That's right. But your your refusal to step aside and your insistence on making it about you is just, and that's again why I come back to this this point of like, have you no shame? Or ha- like, where's the dignity, the dignity to, yeah. to just say, yep, you know what? I'm going to do the right thing. And I do think this, that if you, if someone has the dignity to step away from something and admit that they're wrong and take full responsibility, like this sort of feels like kind of part sort of wishy-washy responsibility. Yes. But if you take full responsibility, I would be more open to a comeback. Hey, yeah. I've gone away. I've done the work and now I'm ready to re-enter with a, uh, with a new understanding. Right. But this, I just feel like you're, you're only doing this so that you can kind of like hopefully get the forgiveness and stay in the position. Yeah. An apology and saying, I, you know, I was flippant. Well, you were more than flippant and, yes. and let's have some recognition of what happened there. So I agree. I think the art of that act, that political apology, the idea of the greater good, I feel like that's gone the way of the dodo bird right. in, in years. But. And that's why I like. I hope that what you're saying will happen today happens, but I'm not holding my breath. I see what you're saying on that one. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Hi, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. All right, let's start with the Lena Robinson story because it is not yeah. going away. In fact, I would say it has now become much more serious than it was a couple of days ago. No, I mean... You know, as, as you pointed out, it's an election year and the government had to cancel a major fundraiser over this in Surrey last night. And New Democrats have been put on notice by some Muslim groups in the province that they aren't welcome in mosques. So that's very, very serious stuff. And I went back over and read the premier's news conference Friday afternoon. So Ibi got asked a lot of questions about this, and he took a half dozen questions. Uh, a couple of things jump out in, to me, especially in the rereading. And the first thing was David Eby saying he did not have a good word to say about Selena Robinson. He ducked the question of whether or not he thought of firing her. He ducked the question of whether or not she'd offered her resignation. But he said several times she has violated the standards of his government and divided the province. He said she has caused a lot of pain to a marginalized group, particularly the Palestinians. She said He said um, she's got a lot of work to do to try and undo the damage And really, the only thing he said that was at all sparing of her was he believes she will do that. But uh, you go back over that, he pretty much hung Selena Robinson out to dry. And you read between the lines, I don't think David Eby would reject her offer of a resignation today if she were to come out and say, uh, I've become a distraction in this issue Uh, I, you know, made a major gaffe and for the sake of the premier and the party in an election year, I'm resigning. Well, I don't know how you couldn't get that message from what he had to say. Let's listen to a little bit of what he had to say. Well, I believe that the minister uh, crossed the line as a member of cabinet. She uh, made remarks that were wrong, that were hurtful. Uh, for a community that increased uh, divisions, 
among people in our province at a time when every member of my government is expected to bring people together. She understands that. She has committed to go out uh, and do her best to repair the harm that she has caused with those comments. And that is my expectation of her going forward. So I find that really interesting, Vaughn, because he's clearly saying that it almost sounded to me like he's saying he he believes this is very serious, obviously, and perhaps others do not. That's interesting. I was struck by, after rereading his comments, read the letter to the premier from the dozen and a half Muslim organizations. And whoever crafted that letter was precise in what they said. They said a couple of things. One, they they used, they turned EB's own words back on him. They talked about the pain to the community, the marginalized group, the reason why uh, they were still troubled. And they also said she should resign. It it was like it was written to, by somebody who, who knew exactly what message to give to the premier to get him to deal with this. Right. The, the one thing Eby didn't say on Friday about apology is she, Robinson's apologized. Eby accepted her apology, but it's up to the groups that were hurt by this whether or not the apology is acceptable. Premier didn't say that, but that's what happened. It's the, the representatives of the people that were hurt by this who've come back and said the apology isn't good enough. So the, the question here, Simi, becomes why would there be any hesitation at all about firing Selena Robinson or passing the word quietly to her by a supporter, um, somebody inside, uh, that you you need to perform one last service for the party and the premier. And I wonder though why she's that. not getting that message. Like she's she's been around for well, a long time. Like she can clearly mm-hmm. see over the weekend that this is becoming increasingly untenable. Uh, she is a major distraction here. Well, I, I can. My understanding is there are two things at play here in the background. The first one is a view by some New Democrats that it was a mistake what she did, but resignation or firing is too big a price for her to pay because many of the people calling for this resignation, not all of them, but many, are score-settling. They are not, they are people who did never condemn the Hamas attacks, who sided with the prophet Langara celebrating those attacks, who are not supporters of the mainstream NDP in BC. They're just trophy hunting. And this government, NDP governments, have been reluctant to give trophies to people like that. Uh, Robinson's own hesitation, I've not spoken to her, but I disagree that it is just about Selena Robinson's ego. I think Selena Robinson sees herself as somebody who has stood up for the Jewish community in the province at a time when it's under ferocious attack, when there's widespread anti-Semitism spread in the province, and that hasn't been condemned by many of the people who are now calling for her head. So, you know, that's the position she sees herself in. I think she's taken, and I said this on Friday, 
uh, hate that most of us cannot, cannot even imagine. And I would say, and I've heard this from colleagues who've even retweeted the people defending her, and they're mostly BC United people that have stepped forward to defending her, BC liberals. Uh, even retweeting that brings a wave of hatred on social media. So and this is a very bitter, divisive issue. Uh, it's semi impossible to say anything on this that isn't divisive. Uh, and so, however, the premier's got a press conference today at 10.30, 11.30, and it's on housing. And I think it's a pretty safe bet that if this isn't dealt with before 11.30 and settled satisfactorily by 11.30, that news conference is going to be dominated by questions about Selena Robinson and this issue. It is not going to be dominated by questions about the big housing announcement. Yeah. So they're on a, you know, That's they're tough. on a timetable today. Uh, I heard you say you'll be surprised if she makes it through the day. Um, your your comment that she's a professional, she's been in politics a long time. I'm sure she recognizes as well as anyone that this is a disastrous comment she made. And I am sure that there are people in the government that are wishing very, very much that Selena Robinson would take the premier and the party off the hook yeah. and submit her resignation. It's just I can't get past the comment. Like, I know she said she was being flippant, but as you also have pointed out time and time again, this is a highly divisive, difficult issue. Yeah. And any kind of flippancy, I felt like, oh, it was... Yeah. So, Vaughn, then just to wrap this thing up, we, we do expect the Premier to get more questions about that today. Yeah, we do. Um, and um, I don't know if he'll say anything all that different from what he said on Friday. I mean, he said she's got a lot of work to do to repair the damage here. Uh, I see the uh, there's been some suggestion that the Premier himself will meet with the communities that are upset. Uh, but I notice they say we're not going to deal with that. We're not even going to meet with you until you've dealt with this. So it's tough. I'd note, too, just in terms of um, the the letter from the dozen and a half mosques, uh, the first I saw of that, it was posted on social media by Angelia Paterai, who is the woman who went up against EB for the party leadership from the left of the NDP and the activist left of the NDP, uh, back uh, when he won the leadership, and the party froze her out. And again, there's there's a division here. The federal NDP members of parliament that have called for a resignation on this, uh, it's underscored that way in the background, there's a division in the NDP around this issue, around Palestine, around the Middle East. But again, you go, what would the reaction of the Jewish community in British Columbia be if... Um, Selena Robinson were looked to have been forced out. Remember, when the premier did his twin gaffes on Holocaust Day and they posted the wrong message about uh, the, the attacks on the mosque in Quebec, Holocaust Remembrance, he apologized immediately, but leaders in the Jewish community came out and immediately said, no, this government has been supportive of us and... We accept that this was just a mistake. Everybody can make mistakes, and we accept the premier's explanation. So the Jewish community has been very forgiving of the government on its gaffes. If, if, if Robinson were seen as being fired as some kind of trophy for people who aren't the least bit sympathetic over the Hamas attacks and the massacre on October the 2nd, that's not a, a, a thing that's going to be easy to fix either. This thing, right. and I mean, you know it, Simi, in our business, 
this is the most divisive issue out there. Yep. Uh, Selena Robinson, the one, the, the one thing you can say about it is she shouldn't have done a oh. two-hour discussion of this right. issue. She should have been very, very careful and kept her comments to a minimum, not holding forth the way she did because you're going to talk yourself into a massive amount of trouble. And that is the number one thing right there, Vaughn, right? Yeah. Like yeah. knowing how divisive yeah. it is, you did not need to go on and on and be flippant about this at all. But yeah. I know we could talk about this for a long time, but yeah. I also, I want to ask... We will be talking you. about it again. I I'm sure we will. But let's talk about some of the... We talked about election year. Yes, it is that. And it sounds like uh, the the they're getting ready for this. They're laying down the groundwork for this. Yeah, the Premier named the campaign manager for the NDP re-election campaign this year. She's Marie Delamont. Mattia. She is very good at her job. She was the head of government communications, a deputy minister in charge of government communications. Uh, she's now going to be running the campaign, and uh, she comes with a nickname. Uh, she <laughs> Marie Delamatia was the person at John Horgan's right hand in the 2017 election, back in the day when he was still known to have a bad temper, one that he got under control when he was in government. And my understanding is she was there to just calm John Horgan down. And it earned her a nickname in the campaign. She was known as the John Whisperer. So Amy doesn't have a bad temper. She's got other qualifications, but it is a footnote uh, on the John Whisperer is back and she's in charge of the NDP re-election campaign. Seems kind of early to be putting a campaign manager yeah, in charge. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Nine months away? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the official line is, hey, there's an awful lot of work to be done. There's an awful lot of work to be done between now and October and the real campaign. Well, it's already sort of underway and the full-blown campaign will be underway uh, Labor Day. So she's going to be working on all of that. That's the official line. Uh, Simi, of course, it started another round of speculation that the reason she's going in early is because they haven't really officially ruled out the idea of a snap election to catch the opposition parties with their pants down and doing it this spring. Um, Amy's ruled out doing that so many times that yeah. I think he'd have a... He'd have a hard time. They got a baby coming around that time. Yeah, that's There's no true. way. That, he also said that, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the baby is due in June. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he did say that too. So, you know, I mean, yeah, after what happened in 2020 with John Horgan saying, well, I'm not thinking of an early election. Why would I be thinking of an early election up to the second he called one? Um, that uh, you got to keep it in the back of your mind. The opposition parties would be really stupid if they didn't, if they completely ruled out the possibility. But I still think Eby's determined. He's confident, very confident uh, that October is going to work for them and he's going to stick to that date. Well, we'll see what happens. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. And yes, there'll be lots more to talk about. Premier with a press conference this morning. So there will be more questions to answer, more comments to, well, for us to decipher, essentially. So we'll talk to Vaughn about that tomorrow morning. This is Mornings with Simi. Now we're going to learn about history this morning because it's always a good time to learn about Canadian history. So today we're going to talk about Carrie Best from Nova Scotia, human rights activist, author, journalist. I mean, you name it, just an amazing, important figure from Canadian history. Now, Craig Baird is the host of the podcast Canadian History X and joins us now. Good morning, Craig. Good morning. Now, who was Carrie Best? 
Well, Carrie Best was born in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia on March 4th, 1903, and throughout her life she dealt with a great deal of racism in Nova Scotia. And in 1943, she attempted to see a movie in the downstairs seating area of the Roseland Theatre. And this theatre was well known in New Glasgow for forcing black patrons to sit in the balcony. So she was arrested and she fought the charges and challenged the legal justification of the theatre segregation. And the case was unsuccessful, but Carrie had to pay damages to the theatre's owner as well. Now, this experience motivated her to establish the Clarion, which was a newspaper to advocate for black Canadians in Nova Scotia, and that allowed her to expose racism and explore the lives of black Canadians in the province. So this was one of the first Nova Scotian uh, black-owned newspapers, and it became an important voice in challenging racial segregation in Nova Scotia. So what she did was she traveled around Halifax to seek advertisers, and she met a merchant named Manuel, and she said she wanted to have something to say about racial understanding because things were not good and he said you're just a small voice crying in the wilderness but keep on crying and he gave her a check and that allowed her to publish her first issue of the clarion okay now, this is amazing is very- i'm sorry sorry it to is, interrupt yes. you because all, all i could think of was even everything you've set up until now we haven't even heard the whole story is amazing i mean 1946 she decides to start a newspaper and just does it and that's that's phenomenal it is, yeah. And, you know, it was really motivated by what happened at the Roseland Theatre. And then in kind of a cool little bit of history, the first edition of her paper broke the story of Viola Desmond, who had challenged the segregation at the Roseland Theatre in 1946 as well. So the Roseland Theatre has these two big connections to, uh, you know, Black history in Canada. So what happened with Viola was she had bought a ticket for the main floor, just like Carrie Best did. And when she sat there, she was forcefully removed from the theatre and charged with tax evasion because of the one cent difference in price between the main floor and the balcony seats. Now, the carry-on covered Viola's case as it went to the court extensively. It was usually on the front page, and that case became a milestone human rights case in Canada. And as everybody knows, Viola Desmond is now on our $10 bill. So the Clarion kept going till 1956, but in 1952, Carrie started The Quiet Corner, which was a radio show which aired till 1964, which also advocated for black Canadians in the province. And from 1968 to 1975, she was a columnist for the Picto Advocate. Now, the work of Carrie inspired her son, James, who wanted to become a union activist, senior public servant and high commissioner to Trinidad and Tobago. And as for Carrie, in 1974, she was awarded the Order of Canada. And three years later, she published her autobiography, The Lonesome Road. And she passed away in 2001 at the age of 98. And then she got the Order of Nova Scotia. And in kind of, you know, a modern honor in 2021, she was featured in a Google Doodle. Okay, that's when you know you've arrived when that happens, right, Craig? Exactly. When you're yeah. in a Google Doodle, that is the thing. And I, I guess what strikes me about this incredible person is it, you know, we don't know enough about them. I mean, I grew up here, I was born and raised here, and this is not a name that I remember learning about in school. That's very true. And I think in many ways, she's heavily overshadowed by Viola Desmond, even though that Carrie Best was the one who kind of really got that case out into the public consciousness. But Viola Desmond is very famous uh, across Canada now because of the $10 bill. But Carrie Best is a big part of that story as well. And so she did she were there repercussions from this? It must have she must have had some tough times to do all this as well. Oh, absolutely there would have been. I mean, this was a black owned newspaper in Nova Scotia. There was still not 
official segregation, but it was an implied segregation, which made it very hard for black Canadians in Nova Scotia to kind of know what the rules were. Uh, and that's what happened with the Roseland Theatre, where, you know, you sit on the main floor, not realizing that it's usually meant for white patrons, but there's no official sign saying whites only, as you would see in the American South. But, you know, she persevered and her paper lasted for 10 years and then helped, you know, spawn a radio show and her work as a columnist. And it did a lot of good for really pushing the Canadian civil rights uh, movement of the time. Wow, she even became a broadcaster. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, her show, The Quiet Corner, aired for 12 years, was very popular and helped her reach a whole new audience. These are the stories come out of Nova Scotia. And I feel like we are, we're, we're more careful about these stories now. I feel like we want to pay attention to these stories, right? Quite like, is it easier for you to find information about people like this now? Oh, absolutely. I think we're really trying to look at our past when it comes to things like this. Uh, You know, like with this month being Black History Month, a lot of these stories are being explored. And so it is becoming easier to learn those things. But these are things that even when I was growing up, I had no idea. Near to me, there's a place called Amber Valley, which was a uh, Black settlement in the early 1900s. And I had no idea that it was there. And I grew up here and I had no idea until a few years ago. So these are things that are starting to come out and people learn more. And I think social media as bad as it can be, is helping with that. That's what I love social media for. I love it for stories Mm -hmm. like this too. So in Nova Scotia, do you think they do a good job of remembering Carrie Best? I think they do. I think they, you know, they they obviously, there's a stamp that's been issued for her uh, and she was, you know, awarded the Order of Nova Scotia a year after she passed away. Uh, So I think they are starting to really honor her uh, for for what she did, not to the level of Viola Desmond, but it's kind of hard to compete with that. But I think she is finally getting her due. Well, thank you for helping us to learn about Carrie Best today, Craig. We appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure. That's Craig Baird, host of the podcast, Canada History X. And you can check out all the great stories that he has with that podcast. And learning about Carrie Best is extraordinary. Listen, this this woman was amazing, right? She was a black journalist from New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. Uh, she founded a newspaper. She co-founded the Clarion in 1946. That was the first newspaper owned by black Nova Scotians. Used it to advocate against racial discrimination uh, and just did an amazing amount of work. Became a radio broadcaster and more. Uh, and this, we are talking about the late 1940s here into the 1950s. Just a phenomenal groundbreaker there. This is Mornings with Simi. Right, our Scott Shantz joins us now. We're going to talk a little bit about the Grammys. I know award ceremonies and all that, but I feel like the Grammys are different because it is more about the performances. Yes, and what I love about the Grammys, uh, if I'm going to pick something that I love about them, is the performances. You know, some of the most legendary ones for me. I remember when they got uh, Eminem and Elton John to actually perform together. Uh, Kendrick so Lamar had this brilliant one that sticks out in my mind. The Emmys are known for like putting together these huge, huge, huge performances, and I will run down some of the big awards uh, in a second here. But like last night was no exception. There were some really, really great ones. I think one of the ones that you and I talked about earlier this morning, Simi, was when Luke Combs and Tracy Chapman did Fast Car. You got a fast car. It's fast enough so you can fly away. We got to make a decision. Leave tonight or live and die this way. This is really cool because uh, Tracy Chapman was playing the guitar and Luke Combs was just singing. He was just standing there singing with her. But to hear him sort of talk about what that song means to him and why he loves it so much. And he like gives all of the credit 
to Tracy Chapman, which is so great because yeah. I think that's one of the best songs ever written. But, you know, lots of people now are like, oh, have you heard this Luke Combs song? It's like, guys, <laughs> it's not a Luke Combs song. Right. And I know there's been some frustration around that, but I really enjoyed listening to him tell the story of his connection to that song yeah. and how he's always loved it. And he just looked pleased his punch to be up on stage with Tracy Chapman and you thought oh like that's it was genuine it was very genuine like look at like he was just standing there right she was playing the guitar and he's like looking over at her like oh my gosh this is incredible and I mean he's one of the biggest country stars in the world right now so that was a key performance but my favorite performance Simi was when 80 year old Joni Mitchell was on stage with a whole bunch of artists including Brandi Carlisle and she did both sides now Bear in mind, she's she's eighty. You know, she's sitting in a chair. She had a singing. brain aneurysm. Yes. you know, a few years back, and th- nobody ever thought she would perform again. Yeah, and I mean, it was incredible. You could tell that the room was just absolutely captivated. You know, I think she's like one of the best to ever do it. I absolutely love that song, and people were just eating it up. And you know, so that was a really, really incredible moment for me. And uh, one of the narratives that's coming out as we sort of talk about who won the awards and stuff is that it was a big night for women. Uh, a lot of the big awards were won by women. Alternative Music Album went, of the Year went to Boy Genius. That's an all-girl rock group. They're fantastic, if you haven't heard of them. Song of the Year went to Billie Eilish, What Was I Made For? That's a song from the Barbie movie. Uh, new Artist of the Year, Victoria Monet. Uh, Record of the Year, Miley Cyrus for Flowers, which we've talked about. We love Miley Cyrus. Love Miley Cyrus. Love the song Flowers. It was all just... I, I enjoyed it. I love the performances. Yeah, and then Album of the Year... This is interesting. It was presented by Celine Dion. Oh, I started that in the wrong spot. And the Grammy goes to Taylor Swift. So obviously Taylor Swift wins. It's very exciting. Her whole crew is there. Jack Antonoff, her producer, and everybody. I mean, is she, was she that surprised? I don't know. She's acting like she's surprised and stuff. She. This is the fourth time she's won Album of the Year. She's she's now broken the record. Most person who has won album of the year most times. So she gets up there. She thanks her producer, Jack Antonoff, thanks a few other producers. And then she does this. Lana Del Rey was hiding. But I think so many female artists would not be where they are and would not have the inspiration they have if it weren't for the work that she's done. I think she's a legacy artist, a legend in, in her prime right now. I'm so lucky to know She's you talking to about Lana Del Rey. With Celine Dion standing Celine Dion right? is standing right there. <laughs> and Joni Mitchell is in the audience. Scott, Scott. My head is exploding. Don't like, upset the Swifties, Scott. <laughs> no, listen, I think that Taylor is incredible. I love all of her work. She's a fantastic song. I want to go to the Eras tour. I also really love Lana Del Rey. I think Lana Del Rey is incredible. Celine Dion is on stage and Joni Mitchell is in the audience, right? And then, because she's just so Taylor Swift, she's so opportunistic, she goes, by the way, my new album drops April 19th. (laughs) Just, I can't, I just, like... 
I, I'm sorry. I feel like I have reached my Taylor Swift moment oh. where I'm, I know, I know. I can't oh. believe that I would say this, but. I can't the, believe it. I can't believe what I'm hearing right the now. The disrespect shown to A, <gasps> like the queen of Canada, the true queen of Canada, Celine Dion, and Joni Mitt. Like, what? Taylor, like, go home. You need to do some reading. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if people understand how huge this is that Scott <laughs> is saying this because he is the person around the office who's always like, Guys, guys, look how great Taylor Swift is. Like, let's call, I mean, she is, right? Like, let's call Absolutely. it what it is. She's a record-breaking Absolutely. artist. She's done amazing things for music and but women and all sorts of things. But a bit like she jumped the shark oh, for you there, Scott. Oh, my gosh. Okay. What a mess. Oof. All right. Well, there'll be a lot of chatter about that today. <laughs> Scott, thank you. You're welcome. All right. That is our Scott Chance. This is Mornings with Simi. Is it time to move the provincial courthouse on Main Street? You know, one time that was, of course, the heart of the city. Now it's a building where Crown prosecutors and lawyers say they don't necessarily feel safe attending court there. A man is facing assault charges after allegedly attacking a Crown prosecutor as they walked to the courthouse. That happened on Friday. Now, to learn more about this and talk about how lawyers are feeling about this, uh, Adam Dalrymple joins us now. Adam is the president of the BC Crown Council Association. Adam, thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. How are Crown prosecutors feeling right now, especially the ones who work in that building? Our membership is really reeling. We're quite shaken by what occurred last Friday. And has this been something that Crown prosecutors have been afraid of? Like, if you work in that building, has this been a concern in the past? Yes, I've worked in the that courthouse probably 11 years of my career. Um, we know that there was an incident, I believe it was an assault in September of 2022. Um, there, We brought this to the attention of our employer. We asked for a number, of rec- we recommended a number of changes. Um, not all of them were implemented. Um, so we're frustrated about this. We're upset. Um, we're angry. Um, this is a problem. We, as I understand it, this prosecutor um, was accompanied by a security guard um, when they were attacked. I think it's a problem that we have to have prosecutors and other court users um, escorted um, to the courthouse um, in a country like Canada and a province like British Columbia in a city like Vancouver. That's a problem. Um, the courthouses need to be accessible. They need to be safe. And that begs the question, what about victims of crime? What about vulnerable witnesses? What about the woman who's been assaulted by her partner that needs to come for an advanced interview at that courthouse or has to come to trial to testify? Or the retired couple in South Vancouver or Burnaby who need to come to the courthouse, who want to see justice done, um, who want to watch someone be sentenced? Is it accessible for them? Who's escorting them to the courthouse? So I think this raises a much larger issue about access to safe courts. And that's why we're calling for a public discussion now on the permanent closure and relocation of that provincial court to an area of the city that is accessible and safe, not just for our people and for other court users, but more importantly, the people we serve, the public of Vancouver and Burnaby. So, Adam, would you say then the time for changes is is passed now? It's just time to move the courthouse. I would say that we have to have a public discussion. There's a lot of stakeholders involved here. Um, the toxic drug supply, the housing crisis, untreated mental health issues have deteriorated um, the safety of that area. Um, it's no longer accessible. And we know 
we know that when they build courthouses, there are certain principles that should guide us. Courthouses should reduce trauma. They should reflect our ideals and aspirations. And I would suggest to you that that courthouse at 222 Main Street no longer has those attributes. What kind of changes were asked for? You mentioned that, you know, a couple of years ago, you'd asked for more changes. Some happened, some did not. What kind of changes are we talking about? Well, at the time after that federal prosecutor was assaulted, we asked management, we asked the employer uh, to consider relaxing the remote work um, provisions or rules to allow prosecutors who don't have to make in-court appearances to be able to work remotely. And that request was rejected. And now, 16 months later, we have a prosecutor who's violently attacked and required hospital care. So we're frustrated. We're upset. We want to see action. I believe the premier cares. Um, I'm encouraged by the comments he has made. But the time for listening to outrage is over. We want to see action and we want to see meaningful action. Yeah, is there a process for that? Have you been given any indication that there's a, a way forward in discussing this issue? No. So then what are the next steps? Is this is this the way you're going to be doing that, pushing this conversation to the forefront? Yes. we're um, Hopefully, with your support and the public support, we can have an open and public discussion about the movement um, of this of this courthouse into a safer area. Now, have you thought about where, like, what would that look like? The timeline for this? I don't. I don't know where it would be. Um, we know that there's other provincial courts um, in the city. Um, we. I don't have the answers. Um, that's for other people um, to sort of answer and to come up with. But um, in terms of timeline, um, we could have. We could at least move the prosecutor's offices, um, relocate them to another location in the city, and on the short term. Um, And then I think in the longer term, we can discuss possibly the planning and movement of the court permanently um, out of that area. Right. That's what I was wondering then. So what can what can be done in the short term uh, to, do you feel, protect uh, the lawyers and the people who come to that court? Because any moving it is, is something that's like years away if they do that. So what about the short term? I don't have all the answers here. Um, This is just the beginning of the process. Um, So I think it's going to involve a public discussion involving a number of stakeholders, um, including our association. Have you been hearing from people who work in that building in the last few days? I've heard from members, um, my members who work in that in that courthouse. Um, I haven't heard from others. And what are they telling you? They're shocked. They're concerned. Um, You know, I spoke with some of them on Friday. This has really shaken them. Um, You know, this was... uh, as I understand it, uh, this prosecutor was in the company of a security guard. Um, you know, in, in my submission, we shouldn't have to have security guards. We shouldn't have to shuttle um, prosecutors and other court users into their courthouse safely. That raises some very big questions about public safety and courthouse accessibility. This is the public's courthouse, and I, I would submit they deserve better. Well, Adam, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. That's Adam Dalrymple, who's the president of the BC Crown Council Association, saying the time has come for major change, potentially relocating even the Main Street Provincial Courthouse. Uh, They're saying it's for public safety. Why now? Well, you've seen the story, heard the story in the news. Uh, There is a man who's now been charged in connection 
with a couple of attacks that happened on Friday was the first person who was attacked was a Crown prosecutor. And as Adam talked about there, the Crown prosecutor was being escorted by an unarmed security guard. This actually is part of uh, Crown Council's Safe Walk program. So that particular courthouse, that location already has uh, a Safe Walk program to escort Crown Counsel uh, to the courthouse and into the courtroom. And there was a security guard with her, uh, but the suspect still um, approached and punched this this Crown Counsel in the face. She was taken to hospital, treated for her injuries there. Uh, and so, yes, police attended. Apparently the suspect uh, also attacked someone else. Uh, so this person has now been charged in both of those attacks. Police say they believe the two assaults were random, that the suspect and the victims were not known to each other, but that doesn't make it, you know, any more reassuring that this was not a targeted attack. The fact is, is the neighborhood not safe enough for Crown Counsel to, or anybody who's attending court, to go back and forth to that building? And I thought the really good point that Adam Dalrymple made there too is like, okay, that's Crown Counsel, but what about the victims of, of crime? What about the people who have to attend court? Uh, those people who have to come there, how do they feel? They don't get to participate in the Safe Walk program or enter with a security guard either. So is the time now to think about moving the courthouse at 222 Main Street, do you think? Is it time to move that provincial courthouse? You want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we're going to talk about some problems at Boeing. They've had enough big stuff going on recently. You thought, okay, they're taking this seriously. They're getting back on track. But it turns out even new uh, problems are still cropping up. They were doing a check of one of their suppliers, Spirit Aerosystems, and they found misdrilled holes on something like 50 of the fuselages that were supplied by this company. Misdrilled holes. I mean, what does that mean? How is this adding to Boeing's woes right now? So we wanted to check in with John Graddick, who's an aviation management professor at McGill University. John, thanks for being back with us. Uh, my pleasure. I mean, now tell me, what this latest problem at Boeing, do you think, man, what more could go wrong for this company? Uh, there could be a few more surprises along the way. I think that, you know, building an airplane is a complex set of activities, like there's over 50,000 parts and components in an airplane, and everything has to be very well coordinated, and uh, the specifications are very exact, uh, as we know with bolts on, on door plugs and today with these misaligned holes being drilled in the fuselage. Um, you know, there, there, there has to be a, a better way of ensuring that the specifications for these airplanes are, in fact, in being delivered on each and every one of these airplanes. And it seems to me that, you know, the inspection process and the quality assurance process seems to be something that Boeing um, has been talking a good story. But I think these revelations that we're getting tells me that uh, they've got a long way to go yet. Okay, so then would you consider this to be more like it's a reckoning for this company that feels like it's been a, a while in the making? Yeah, it's, it has been. It's been something that we've seen happen to Boeing over the last decade where it's kind of lost its its engineering ways and its manufacturing excellence ways. Uh, Boeing, you know, has got airplanes that have been flying around the world for uh, close to 100 years, and they're good airplanes, except that the fact that, you know, we're getting a new series of airplanes, these current airplanes, seem to have lost, Boeing seems to have lost its way in terms of ensuring quality and, and then construction, uh, you know, construction quality. So I think that there is a need for Boeing to kind of go back and have a look at, you know, how do we in fact reinstill 
the engineering and the quality assurance practices that were very prevalent in Boeing have passed and make sure they bring them back because I don't think anybody can afford the fact that we got airplanes coming out of Boeing that uh, people don't have a trust in. Yeah, no kidding. I wonder, is this is this different too this time, John? Because I noticed that some of the biggest customers of Boeing are the ones that are actually speaking up and saying, hey, we've had it with Boeing at this point. Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, Boeing, you know, has has had a number of missteps, as we call it, in the industry over the last five, six years, especially uh, on all of their aircraft, whether it's a 777, the 787, the 737 MAX. Um, there's been, you know, quality missteps along the way. And I think, you know, the, air, the airlines, their customers are, are getting a little, you know, fed up. The fact that we keep hearing these stories about manufacturing deficiencies and those are affecting the airplanes that they've bought from Boeing. And, you know, that translates that that lack of trust, you know, is, is, is yeah, it's a Boeing issue. But guess who pays the price for that lack of trust? It's the airlines that have bought those Boeing airplanes where passengers are staying away from. So the airlines are getting a little uh, fed up, I think, with the with these uh, d- disclosures about uh, quality assurance and and uh, and it missteps in terms of production. So it did, and it's very rightly so. Emirates is making some noise. United is making noise. Uh, Ryanair is making noise. So there, there are a lot of the good Boeing customers are are very concerned. Okay, so you know, given your specialty in aviation management, then how does Boeing fix this? How does management start to fix this? <clears throat> oh, long story. Uh, and, you <laughs> well, know, give it a long, shot. It's a, it's, well, no. It, 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 in my opinion, this is my opinion. My opinion only. I think that you know, Boeing has in fact had a focus on finance and a focus on economics and on profit making over the last ten years. The senior leadership at Boeing has got a very, very strong finance background. I think the engineering side, the commercial aviation side of Boeing has been you know, pushed aside for the sake of profitability and cost control, uh, and they want output. And so when you have a production line where you're, you know, you're forsaking quality assurance and, and inspections for the sake of getting stuff off the production line, um, that's where Boeing, to my, in my opinion, has fallen apart, that they really are pushing for output rather than making sure that we're getting safety and and uh, and, and quality assurance as part of the work that, we did, that they're doing. Okay, so do you see any sign, though, that with this current crisis that they're in, that perhaps they're hearing the message and they're taking the steps to fix it? They're starting, but I don't think it's, you know, I think you, you need some you need some people to be put into jobs, um, you know, that, that really have that, that, that track record of quality assurance and commercial aviation. Uh, you know, Mr. Calhoun, for all his background and generally at GE and his work at, at, at Boeing over the last few years is very much a finance guy. The, the audit that they've asked for was coming from a, a Navy, a Navy admiral who I, I don't know, but I've, I've heard, uh, you need people who understand commercial aviation, who understand, you know, the, 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 the degree of concern and the degree of trust that the users of commercial aviation need to have from Boeing. And you have to have people at Boeing who represent that 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 style of management, and I think that's where Boeing needs to have some a bit of a, of a shakeup in terms of the the type of people, the type of background that they have in the leadership roles for some of these some of these divisions. Okay, so what do you expect to hear then in the near future from this company? If they're saying and doing the right things, what has to happen? I have to have you know I, I don't need to have these these instances of misdrilled bolts, the misdrilled holes. That tells me that, that there's still some lack, you know, they need to be perfect. Those airplanes have got to come off the line, picture perfect. 
that there is no safety considerations at all. And, you know, when you when somebody on the line says, I see a problem, stop the line and fix it rather than keep pushing production off the line to get your numbers up. So they, they need to reinstill the sense that, you know, uh, coming, you know, these airplanes are built with, with, by people. They're not robots in there. They're people and people have to get the job done. And they notice when things fall apart, yeah. people notice and they have to be able to push the stop button on the production line and fix the problem. That's not the mode I see at Boeing these days. They're still focused on production and getting the numbers up rather than making sure that every single airplane comes off the line safe. Right. They have, people have to know that if they press the button to stop the line, that there won't be you know repercussions or fallout from that, that they'll, it'll be okay if they do that. Uh, John, yeah. thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a great day. Take you, care. You too. That's John Graddick, Aviation Management Professor at McGill University. This is Mornings with Simi. Big news for the city of Vancouver on the weekend. We will be hosting seven games for the 2026 World Cup, including games in the round of 32 and also um, a match in the round of 16, too. Now, this has been a long and sometimes contentious path to get here. There are still plenty of questions about how the city is going to pull this off. So joining us now is Ken Sim, the mayor of Vancouver. Thank you for being here. Hey, Simi, thank you very much for having me. Well, let's start with the good stuff here. How excited are you? Oh, my God, I, uh, I can't sit down right now. Still jumping up and down. Um, you couldn't ask for a better outcome. We have two uh, opening round games for Team Canada. We have five regular games and then a round of 16 and a round of 32. And if Canada, knock on wood, I'm literally knocking my fist on my head right now. Uh, if we run, uh, if we win the, the group, uh, we will be hosting a game in the round of 32. And if we win that, we you know, host a you know, round of 16 game. Like it, it, It's incredible. Okay, but now I have to ask, what is this going to cost us? You know, uh, we're going to be flushing out those numbers because, you know, it, I guess the uh, uh, the initial, uh, uh, you know, uh, business case uh, called for less games. Uh, so, but make no mistake about this. This is an opportunity. If we could have asked for more games, we would have. And so these are all good things. And when you look at the economic impact of what these games mean to the city of Vancouver and the province and the region, it's it's incredible. Um, it's going to be, uh, you know, the, the old estimate was over a billion dollars and economic activity leading up to the games in five years uh, thereafter. 900,000 tourists coming to the city of Vancouver. Um, Like... To, to put this into perspective, people look at uh, world. Uh, they think that a World Cup game is like hosting a Super Bowl, and they are significantly underestimating um, um, their uh, their numbers because the average Super Bowl draws an average uh, viewership of about 115 million people. Uh, an opening round game for World Cup draws a, an, a, an, a, a viewership of 350 million people. We are literally going to get. The equivalent of 30 to 40 Super Bowls in the city of Vancouver over a month-long period. It's going to be lights out, amazing for the city, the province, the country. From you know, uh, from a branding perspective, from a tourism perspective, from an economic impact perspective, it's a huge win. But you're saying though that because we got more games than our business case had provided for, are you saying that it's actually going to cost more than what we originally thought? You know, that would be the assumption, uh, obviously, but uh, also the, the revenue opportunities will be significantly higher as well. 
And so this is a good thing. Um, We definitely, um, we will be looking at the business case again with our, you know, with, you know, our provincial partners and our other partners. Um, But this, and and by the way, Based on all our conversations, we're going to make sure that, uh, you know, that we would only sign up for something that was fiscally responsible. And this makes a lot of sense. So um, more to come on that. Uh, we're just happy, like we're over the moon, that we are given seven games. This is a big win. Okay, what about the hotel rooms? You talked about the number. I mean, obviously, lots of tourists are expected to come here for these games. Where is everyone going to stay? We know we already have a shortage of hotel rooms. Yeah, and that's uh, definitely a challenge and an opportunity we're going to be facing as well. And, you know, we saw this coming before um, the announcement. And so, um, you know, and uh, outside of World Cup, the city of Vancouver needs more hotel rooms or that will stop us from getting uh, conventions uh, in the future, as an example, and it'll it'll limit our tourism industry. And so at City Council, we've been making a big push uh, before this announcement to um, make it easier to build hotel rooms in the city of Vancouver. And I think... uh, um, you know, it's starting to pay off where we're getting a lot of applications um, for hotel rooms. And we still have challenges, but I think this is good. Um, World Cup definitely lights a fire under all of our um, bottoms, so to speak, and we'll be pushing even harder to get more hotel rooms built in the city of Vancouver. Right, we got two years, though. I mean, those are applications. It takes a long time to get stuff built here. And now with the squeeze on kind of short-term rentals as well, is there not a concern that there really isn't a place for people to stay when they come here? Yeah, and so what the reality is, um, we're going to have to be innovative in how we address these things. Because yeah, you're absolutely right. There, you know, it's not as if we're going to build sixteen thousand hotel rooms in the next uh, twenty four, twenty six months. Uh, but we could th- look at things differently. Like you can bring, uh, you know, cruise ships into the city that will provide some, not a lot, but some additional hotel rooms, and we can get innovative uh, during the month long period. Um, you know, and uh, you know, um, make accommodations, but. These are all things that we're going to be working on over the next uh, couple of years to make sure that uh, we uh, you know, address uh, the shortage of rooms, but also we do it in a way that we don't displace uh, people that want to live here uh, and need to live here over the longer period. How much has the province committed to help the city of Vancouver here? Um, well, there we there there's like a non-disclosure agreement but what i can tell you is uh the the provincial government has been great partners um you know we have host partners be it the province yvr pavco um that are all helping us out on this one and it's a joint effort and um you know without uh, our host partners uh none of this would be possible and we're incredibly thankful for all of them so when will we learn more kind of about the process and the business plan and those kinds of numbers you know, as soon as we can disclose, we would be more than happily, uh, would be happy to disclose. And, uh, you know, it's not a, a unwillingness on uh, our parts. Uh, I can tell you FIFA has a very, very, um, you know, ironclad non-disclosure agreement. Uh, and they have the reasons for that. Um, what I can tell you is um, our provincial uh, partners and ourselves, uh, we've been looking at uh, everything from a lens of fiscal responsibility and making sure things work or we wouldn't sign up for the program. And, um, you know, as soon as we uh, legally can disclose, you, you'll see the disclosure out there. Okay, so from the numbers that you've seen then, and I know you can't say what they are, but are, you're comfortable with, with what the city of Vancouver is committed to? What I can share with you is the economic impact of these games are going to be 
enormous. This is a massive opportunity. This will be way bigger than the Olympics when it comes to uh, economic impact on the city of Vancouver in the short, medium and long term. And we are so fortunate to get seven games. And, uh, you know, as we start to flesh out the business case now, because, you know, we, we got more games than anticipated. And it's a good thing that we're happy. We're like over the moon that we got these games. Um, you know, we'll, we'll make the business case for it for sure. Right. So obviously we're in the final end here, right? Like we've got two years to go. Things are going to start to ramp up. Uh, is there a lot of work that has to be done? Like I'm just thinking about even the field for, for BC Place, right? There's a lot of work here. Yeah, there is a ton of work. And so now the great thing is um, Vancouver has uh, an incredible history of hosting major events, be it Expo, be it the Olympics, be it three different World Cups uh, in Vancouver, um, the last one being the Women's uh, World Cup here. Um, and so this is, is just a continuation of that. And I can tell you, um, based on our conversations with, uh, you know, uh, the Canadian Soccer Association, uh the FIFA actually looks to Vancouver as a role model city that has done amazing work and our FIFA team um, is leading the charge out of uh, a lot of the other uh, host cities. So we're, we're in good shape and we have a lot of work to do and we're not going to take anything for granted. We're going to work our butts off uh, to make sure that we pull off the most successful World Cup uh, ever and uh, in particular uh, amongst the 16 teams that are hosting or 16 cities that are hosting uh, in 2026. A lot of competition. Uh, Mayor Kim, Ken Sim, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you very much. That's Ken Sim, Mayor of Vancouver, talking about Vancouver's commitment to now seven games of World Cup 2026. And it is uh, a huge commitment to do that, as the mayor was pointing out. And I, I have a lot of questions. I, I still am curious about where everybody's going to stay, right? Obviously, that's a huge problem. Uh, we need thousands and thousands of hotel rooms or places for people to stay that we just don't have right now. And I was thinking back to, and I'm dating myself here, but Expo 86, this was a huge problem at the time that Vancouver was a relatively small city that that was welcoming an awful lot of people to come to Expo and it required some different types of thinking. People doing, I guess, the first version of short-term rentals. Uh, that was a big program from the Socred government of the day, allowing people to host people in their homes. And I just wonder, are we going to have to do that again? Will there have to be an exception to the short-term rental rules for the period around the World Cup to make way where are all these people going to stay? Uh, so many questions about this. So good thing or not, do you think, that we are committing ourselves to this? Obviously, we're done. We're doing it. Uh, but are you wary of the cost? Or are you happy? We try to get tickets for this.